on the record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. We wanted to return to the circumstances in Ukraine and in a way uh, the letter written by Sabina Higgins a couple of weeks ago which still continues to occupy minds even if some people believe that it's a bit of a fleeting story or that it shouldn't get as much uh, oxygen as it is. Uh, We're going to talk to the author of a book about the current Ukraine crisis about whether all of this was avoidable and about the idea of uh, a negotiated settlement and to uh, a representative of the Ukrainian community in Ireland. First of all we're going to speak to Sean O'Connell who is in the School of Law in University College Cork. Um, Sean thank you for speaking to us this lunchtime Uh, We wanted to to pick your brain just about the constitutional aspect of not even necessarily Sabina Higgins, but indeed Orson Uchtdron in general getting involved in or perceiving to be a commentator in um, foreign affairs in Ireland. Uh, Where does the constitution stand on the presidency in general, let alone a first lady? And we'll get back to that about the presidency uh, having commentary in foreign affairs in Ireland. So, so it's interesting. It's one of these areas where the constitution isn't explicit on it, but we have developed conventions and traditions around it that the president has no role in, for example, foreign policy besides supporting government policy. Um, we have this wonderful expression in, in our constitution around nearly all the functions of the president, say for two, where the president performs them on the advice of the government. Basically, the president does what the government tells him to do, is what that means. And certainly in the area of foreign policy, the, the president would be seen as having no executive power so he's just there to back up the government and traditionally that would have been you know we see it on the president going on trade delegations and going meeting the diaspora and you know working on various connections abroad but the president wouldn't have been seen as having any kind of ambit to you know, maybe criticise government policy or even suggest new directions. Where they have intervened in any kind of subtle way, it's you know, Mary McAleese was very, you know, about building bridges was her expression. You know, and she'd, she wouldn't say the government should do this, but she'd work towards building bridges that might maybe give a subtle nudge, whereas maybe at times we've seen President Higgins pushing that a little bit, but there's nothing in the constitution that explicitly limits that per se. So does that mean then that although the constitution does say that foreign relations or the the external relations of the state are the sole preserve of the government that because the president is elected and has a sort of a moral authority by having a mandate from the people that there is kind of some unspoken license for them to do some commentary on foreign affairs as long as it doesn't tread on the government's toes basically? I, I think so. And that, that's certainly been the tradition we've had. And like I said, it's, it's a convention. And because it's not written there, conventions can change, you know, and, and they can evolve. But it, it, it's interesting as to how this story and a few others around uh, President Higgins' presidency, it, it's that maybe you're pushing the envelope to a certain extent, but at the same time, no one can tell you it's unconstitutional because it, 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 it's, it's frankly not unconstitutional, but it's, it's against the norms and the, you know, the, the, the civility we've built up over the years around the office. Is it perhaps then so controversial in this instance, as many people uh, have have argued, um, that it's become controversial only because um, the statement from the presidency, uh, from the presidency, and I, and I mean that from the officer, from the Oris, rather than from President Higgins himself, because obviously he hasn't spoken ab- about this particular instance, uh, but that it's only controversial because it's seen as maybe cutting across or being somehow in conflict with what the government had said. I, I think so. And Elaine Byrne had a very good piece in Sunday Business Post on this today. But, you know, Mrs. Higgins has a constitutional right. And this is the only area the Constitution comes into. She has a constitutional right for freedom of expression. And people have the exact same constitutional right to criticize her expressions. And, and as a private citizen, that, that should be, you know, two seconds there at the start and the end of the story. But mm. I suppose it becomes a bit more complicated when it was published uh, on the presidential. Oh, Sean, are you there? 
Oh, I think I think the line with Sean has died. We'll try and get Sean back, maybe back on the line in a couple of minutes. But in the meantime, we're also joined in studio uh, by Alina Kalmakova, who is a member of the Association of, of Ukrainians in Ireland. Um, Alina, I know that you, you've only been in the country, I think, for about six months or so. Um, yeah. So, but before we we talk actually about your 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 stance or your reaction to the controversy of the last couple of weeks, um, how did you find the process of accommodation in Ireland, or where have you ended up? I had no that process at all. <laughs> you have no success at all? No success at all because okay. uh, I was Wait. searching for, for accommodation by myself and only being hosted by someone. Yeah. And it was successful because of uh, my proactiveness. Okay. So, uh, I had uh, no help from, okay. from government. Uh, so it was because you, you were keen that you wanted to live in your own accommodation and not in any kind of a sheltered setting? Uh, yeah, because actually I was placed first uh, on gym. Okay. Stayed there two nights and decided to search by myself because uh, we had some friends here mm. who tried to help us and uh, put a message on a Facebook group. Uh, then it was uh, months of uh, adventures mm. <laughs> and most of the people, I guess, know because of um, articles in newspapers. Yeah. And then finally I'm settled in Dublin. Okay. Um, I will come back just, just to Sean because I think we've got Sean's line uh, back on the line. I'll come back to you just in a moment, Alina. Um, Sean, we, we lost you just when you were in the middle of saying that maybe the issue here was that the, the president.ie website had, had been exercised to publish the views of a private citizen. Yeah, that's it. And it was it was perhaps suggesting that there is a veneer of presidential approval of that message, which I don't think was necessarily the case. But that's where I think the story has grown legs. And I don't think Mrs. Higgins' subsequent explanation has really cleared that element of it up. Why was it put on the website in the first place? Um, is, is that done with the imprimatur of the president or not? Um, just on that note then finally before I let you go and thank you for, for um, trying to help your, your line get back up and running while, while we lost you for a couple of minutes um, the role of there being and I described her as the first lady a few minutes ago um, this kind of role of the spouse of the president having some sort of ambassadorial role or this kind of freelance uh, diplomacy or sort of freelance anything you like um, the constitution I presume is completely silent on that or on the idea of the, the spouse of the president someone who has a mandate then sort of borrowing that mandate to, to achieve certain things in their own yeah, there's absolutely nothing in the constitution, but but it is an interesting dilemma because we expect Mrs. Higgins and previous presidential spouses to play a role, uh, but but then we, we we then have a brouhaha when they make a comment. You know, for example, Martin McAleese was a senator while his wife was president. You know, so there, but you could argue be... that means that they, these that gave him that the mandate of a seat in the Oireachtas, then for which he could use stuff because he had a mandate of his own that he wasn't borrowing the mandate given to his partner. Exactly, and 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 that's where you know, like in the United States, you have a formal office of the first lady, and and she has her own staff and her own advisors, and then it becomes a bit clearer as to what you're saying within that capacity. But, but our constitution is entirely silent on that. Um, Sean O'Connell from the School of Law and UCC, thank you for for lending us your your constitutional nous and all of that. Um, Alina Kalmakova is still with me in studio. Alina, you were just talking to us about your your struggle in, in uh, getting accommodation. Um, I'm glad that you you found yourself sorted. At least you have something stable in the meantime. Anyway, um, what did you make, or, or what was your first reaction when you heard of the letter that was written by Mrs. Higgins to the Irish Times, arguing for a negotiated settlement of this war? Uh, we consider that publication as a sign because actually it wasn't official, but let's say half official because uh, reading between lines, it would be like. Uh, we see the statement that helping Ukrainian refugees becoming a burden for government, actually. And on the one hand, we hasten to assure that Mrs. Sabina is uh, that majority of Ukrainians would really like to return home, mm. first of all. And uh, those people who are staying here can help her country, Ireland. I mean, mm. because if they stay, they will work, definitely. Mm. And um, there is also pressure circumstances for many of them because they can't return home. And meanwhile, the situation is Ukraine is getting worse and worse, and it's not being covered in the media. 
And um, we understand this is a matter of geopolitics, but not ordinary Ukrainians. Um, they can do they can do anything in this situation. And we want to assume and for her uh, understanding that Ukrainians are grateful for ordinary Irish people, for housings, for help for us and uh, for uh, being being kind towards us. And meanwhile, um, there is also an option that Ireland has the right to limit the quota for accommodation for Ukrainians. Because this is reasonable also, and this because everyone understands that sources of uh, each country are limited. Mm. So most likely, and would it be better just to for people's understanding to say them that um, there is no accommodation here? Mm. And uh, on the and, so, and that is understood that like obviously anyone yes. who's coming here, they do understand that accommodation yes, is, is pretty scarce at the best of times. Anyway, yes, yes, because we are reading between the lines actually, yeah. and we understand because um, most likely it's uh, no good for Ireland because sources are not uh, unlimited yes yeah I, I don't want to put words in your mouth but then does that mean you, you mentioned the idea of being seen as a, a burden or that it was perceived as a burden on ireland does it give you the impression or would it give ukrainian nationals in ireland the impression that this is now being seen as a burden or that you are testing the patience or the strength or the capacity of the country sometimes it feels like that and does, does that the, the comments of sabina higgins compound that I wouldn't say it was uh, offensive, uh, but we are reading between the, the lines, as I told. Mm. And it feels like uh, a small sign for us, for our better understanding. Yeah. Again, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but some people would see, in, in circumstances where you've had to leave your own country because of an invasion by a neighbour, some people would see the call for a negotiation between the two countries to end that war as being a concession, as being a capitulation, that the person has just invaded your country and now you're expected to sit down at a table and negotiate with them. In truth, is that possibly the only way that this can end anyway? That that although a lot of people would, of course, argue that, well, if, if Russia are the perpetrators, Russia should just withdraw, pull out and apologise and make concessions for everything that they've done. But that's very unlikely to happen. So a lot of people might argue that, well, negotiation is really the only way that this is going to end and that people like you might ever be able to return to your own country? I don't think it's possible because uh, negotiations could be only regards a peace peace deal. No, impossible. Only for maybe for food crisis because Ukraine is a chain, is a chain in uh, food, mm. food crisis also. So only due to this. Uh, this country has a history itself of negotiations in one part of the country to ensure that there was no more violence. And I'm sure you, you probably know a little bit about that in the time that you've been here. I'm talking about Northern Ireland and, and the talks that there were. And there, of course, would be differing understandings around how violence occurred there. But that discussion and negotiation was the only way to result in peace. But you, you don't see that as applying in your case. Everyone understands that there won't be negotiating because um, we knew we read about conflict of civilization in Samuel Huntington's books. And now we see the idea of that was wrong because even if we have so much in common, I mean, Ukrainian nation and Russian nations like mm. uh, um, churches, beliefs, uh, languages. Anyways, we can't uh, deal between because there is really offensive thing because uh, being the cruelty, the cruelty um, between ordinary people, how do they act uh, towards us, how do they treat us, the violence uh, in Ukraine and what I saw from, with my own eyes and what I saw from my friends, that is uh, nonsense. Um, 
To stay with us, Alina, um, I want to bring in Dr. Yuri Felchinsky, who is the co-author of of a book which is to be published next month called Blowing Up Ukraine. It's about the the circumstances which led to the current conflict. Um, Yuri, thank you for joining us this morning, um, because I know that you're you're in in the United States. So thank you for getting up early to speak to us. Um, You make the case in your book. uh, I'll I'll talk to you about the the present consequences in just a moment. You make the case that all of this was was somewhat inevitable. Well, inevitable in a sense that after invasion of 2014, it was clear that Putin is not going to stop. And that's unfortunately is a, a case even now. It, this is not about Ukraine for Putin. This is about uh, changing the borders of Europe uh, established in 1991. This is about the collapse of the Soviet Union, which he wants to recreate. This is about the Eastern Bloc, which, you know, left the influence of the Soviet Union and now in existence in independent countries. So that's, uh, it's much bigger than this is just a war between Russia and Ukraine. So I personally do not believe that this war will stay within Ukrainian borders because this is not Putin intentions. Putin intentions are, you know, to, to rebuild the empire, whether this would be a new Russian empire or Soviet empire doesn't really matter. But the point is that he wants the turn of several other countries in, in, into the borders of the Russian Federation. So that's that's why, unfortunately, uh, the peace uh, is impossible. Uh, the, the easiest way to you know to to sign the peace is to withdraw from Ukraine, but that's not going to happen. And, and unfortunately, it's not the case when Putin would agree. Uh, Ukrainians would not agree to this as well. But this is not a case when Putin would agree to take part of territories and leave the rest of Ukraine to exist. We just extend. The, the situation of 2014 for some time he would invade again he would continue the war okay. it's much again it's much bigger it's much bigger than just an, an invasion of ukraine it's much bigger than uh, just an attempt to take some okay. regions of ukraine uh, we are probably talking about uh, possibility of the third world war um, so do you believe then that the annexation of Crimea um, eight years ago, that that was another attempt by Putin just to sort of test the waters and to see what measure of international resistance there might be if he tried to go redrawing the borders of Europe? Uh, yes, of course. And uh, the uh, the problem is that, and the issue of if is always, of course, a, a difficulty for discussion. But uh, if Europe would introduce uh, sanctions which were introduced after 24th of February in 2014, mm. we probably would never have an invasion of 24th of February. Why do you think that there, w- there wasn't the sense of, of initiative then that there is now? That everyone saw what happened in 24th of February this year and the European community rallied and said, we can't accept this and we're going to introduce progressive rounds upon rounds upon rounds of sanctions but there wasn't the same thing done in 2014 when a country in Europe had its sovereign territory invaded by another well partially uh, Ukrainians are to blame because they were not uh, crying wolf as well everybody was avoiding the word war 
everybody pretended that this is just a kind of local conflict uh, which had nothing to do with the invasion of a major European country, Russia, of another European state, uh, Ukraine. So even Ukrainians avoided uh, the word uh, war to be used. Uh, Ukraine never brought, uh, sorry, never broke diplomatic relations with uh, Russia. Ukraine never actually said that this is a war and we are conducting a war. So that's why Europe pretended that this is not a war as well. And again, it gave eight years of preparations uh, to Ukrainians, we have to say. But when invasion of February of this year happened, now it was very different. Uh, It was an army of 200,000 people concentrated along the border. This was not the case in 2014. So this uh, was really a full-scale war and there was no way for everybody to avoid the world. Okay. Um, Then what would be the... If you believe this is an attempt by by Putin and by Russia to, to redraw the borders of Europe and to create something of a Russian empire in this continent... What is the the barrier to, to or what is the means by which the rest of the world stops that? Is there any uh, prospect at all for a diplomatic way out of that? Um, as the the uh, president's wife here in Ireland has has suggested, might be the case. Well, uh, the simple answer is no. There is no room for diplomacy. There is no room for negotiations. Uh, it's not. Uh, it's not me who is coming to a conclusion that Putin is recreating the empire. Uh, it's Putin himself who made uh, several major speeches about this. So it's uh, what we know. Uh, we know from Putin and from people very close to Putin, he is not alone in this. The, the Russian government completely supports him. So again, it's much bigger than just Putin, who had these crazy ambitions, and the rest of the country is silent. No, the rest of the country is not silent. The rest of the country is supporting him. So I, I think I think we're facing a major escalation, and and I think uh, we we see that Europe actually understands this. The last Madrid meeting indicates that Europe is preparing for a major confrontation and possibly for a direct military confrontation with uh, uh, Russia. Uh, The sanctions actually, of course, this is a punishment for Russia, but this is also a way to prepare Europe to exist without Russia, because if a full-scale war with Russia starts, then Europe is going to stay without Russian gas, without Russian oil, without Russian metals. So I think there is an understanding in Europe that conflict is much bigger than just uh, what unquote local yeah. Russian-Ukrainian okay. war. Um, it's, a, it's a sobering analysis, but I appreciate you getting up early to give it to us, uh, Yuri. Thank you. Yuri Fostinsky uh, is the author of um, Breaking, Blowing Up Ukraine, a forthcoming book about the uh, genesis of the current crisis. He's also, by the way, uh, the previous author of books called uh, Blowing Up Russia, in which he collaborated with Alexander Litvinenko, um, who obviously has paid a pretty significant price for his stance against the, the Russian uh, government and, and its actions uh, in the rest of the world. Um, Alina Kamakova is still with me in studio. Um, it, it's a pretty pretty depressing vista this idea that at least one person's analysis is that this is going to result in ever escalating war and that there is very little prospect of a peaceful solution anytime soon if at all 
Well, yes, but it's true. I would agree with uh, our previous guest because uh, my opinion is the same. It looks like uh, extended war. And that there is no way that that can be avoided at all? There is no way. There is no way. The only one negotiation to be only on food supplement agreements. That's all, because uh, we can't deny it and we can. We have to be a supplier for all the Europe and we have uh, to supply uh, food to all over the world. It must be a... I'm sorry for asking what must be a sensitive question, but it must be a very 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 challenging idea to think that at the start of this year that you were living peacefully in your country you were a professional you're a professional here now you're still you're working here in dublin um but that you had a what was ostensibly a very normal life and that this year the world for you has changed and it's never going to return to what it previously was yes and you never know what is going to be tomorrow really because it could be an escalating conflict and could be a world war you never know really because ukraine is a life shield for europe and for all the world um, yeah, I know it's a, it's a very difficult thing to discuss, but thank you for coming in to, to speak to us this lunchtime. I really appreciate your time and thank you for coming in. That's Alina Kalmakova from the Association of Ukrainians in Ireland. Before that, Yuri Fostinsky, the author of Blowing Up Ukraine. And before that, again, Sean O'Connell from the ECC School of Law. On the record with Gavin Riley, Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC. Combining talent and technology, we're hardwired to find solutions. It all adds up to the new equation. On News Talk.